welcome to the very first episode of the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Noam Connor, and before we begin, I'd just like to say that this has been a project a long time in the making, and I'm very excited to begin sharing it with you all today. Anyway, today's episode will be about the early life of Baron Roman von Ungern Sternberg, the mad Russian general who would go on to be the last Khan of Mongolia. Very quick note of housekeeping, this will be a four-part series released on a bi-weekly basis. So without further ado, let's get into the narrative. Nikolai Roman Maximilian von Ungern Sternberg was born on the 10th of January, 1886, in Graz, Austria. His parents were Sophie Charlotte, born von Wimpfen, and Theodore Leonard Rudolf Freiherr von Ungern Sternberg. For brevity's sake, I will henceforth be referring to Nikolai Roman Maximilian von Ungern Sternberg simply as Ungern. The House of Ungern Sternberg was one of the Baltic German nobility. The Baltic Germans, as the name implies, were ethnic Germans who, in the 12th century, had settled in the Baltic region, i.e. modern Latvia and Estonia. Over the centuries, they had come to create a ruling class over the indigenous Baltic people, the origins of the family are pretty much exemplary for a Baltic-German noble lineage. The progenitors of House Ungern-Sternberg were ethnic German knights, although Ungern himself often liked to claim Central Asian ancestry as well. Anyway, these German knights pledged allegiance to the Teutonic Order, a Catholic military organization founded during the Crusades. Ungern claimed that one of his progenitors was the first to make it over the walls of Jerusalem during the First Crusade. Through the 11th and 12th centuries, the Teutonic Order took on the mission of forcibly Christianizing the pagan inhabitants of northeastern Europe, and the Ungern Sternbergs heeded the call. After their mission had ended, however, many of the German crusaders, the Ungern Sternbergs included, decided to settle permanently in the region. Through the centuries, the Ungern Sternbergs split up and proliferated throughout the Baltic. The branch of the family to which Ungern and his father Theodore belonged was based on the island of Dago now called Hiuma, off the coast of Estonia. According to family legend, the island had been acquired in the 1700s by Baron Peter von Ungern-Sternberg, an infamous privateer who terrorized merchant ships on the Baltic Sea. As previously mentioned, the Baltic Germans constituted a ruling class over the native Estonians and Latvians, and others. The Baltic Germans managed to hold on to their power even as the region changed hands between the various imperial powers of Eastern Europe, the Lithuanians, the Polish, the Swedish, and eventually the Russians. The Baltic Germans integrated themselves into the power structures of the Russian Empire. They constituted an oversized portion of Russia's military officers and bureaucrats, as well as making up a prominent section of the Russian aristocracy. Many members of notable Baltic German families, including the Ungern Sternbergs, intermarried with members of the House of Romanov, the dynasty that had ruled Russia since 1613. Ungern was very proud of his family's storied past. He boasted about his crusader and privateer ancestors at every opportunity. He was especially keen to emphasize his family's longtime devotion to the Tsar. Per his estimation, no less than 72 members of his family had died in service to the Russian Empire. Ungern's mother, however, was from a much more modest background. The von Wimpfens hailed from the South German region of Baden-Württemberg, they were newly minted nobility, and they made a respectable fortune in the wine-producing business. 
The family acquired extensive land holdings through southern Germany and Austria, which explains why Theodore and Sophie were living in Graz at the time of Ungern's birth. Unfortunately, their marriage was not meant to last, being as it was a pairing of convenience. The Ungern Sternbergs were well-established and prestigious, but had fallen on hard times financially. Whereas the von Wimpfens were a newly established noble line of lesser status, but they were better off financially. Theirs was never a particularly happy marriage. Theodore was a geologist by trade, and his work took him far afield for months on end. On rare occasions, however, he would bring his family along with him. It was during one such trip to the Caucasus Mountains in 1889 that the couple's oldest child, Charlotte, died suddenly at the age of six. Instead of bonding over this tragedy, they only drifted further apart. Fortunately for them, however, the Lutheran faith which they both professed permitted divorce for almost any reason. On the couple's divorce papers, the reason given by Theodore was a cryptic one-sentence statement, wounds which cannot heal. Sophie was given custody of their children, a decision likely made on account of Theodore's declining mental state. A short time after the divorce, he was committed to an asylum for an unspecified mental disorder. Following his release a year later, he remarried and subsequently falls off the historical record entirely. Even the precise year of his death is unknown. Sophie took the children to the Ungern Sternberg's ancestral homeland of Estonia. There, she too married again to a Baltic German noble named Oskar von Heuningen Hune. The family then moved into the Heuningen Hune manor at Jurwakant in central Estonia. It is here that Ungern spent the later half of his childhood. It is unknown how exactly Ungern reacted to the traumatic events of his early childhood, or how they affected his development. In fact, very little is known about his early childhood in general. Once he reached the age of 14, Ungern was sent off to school in the provincial capital of Reval, now known as Tallinn. Traditionally, the scions of Baltic German nobles would have been educated in a German language school, but by the time Ungern came around, that was beginning to change. Throughout the 19th century, the Russian government was implementing policies that sought to assimilate their non-Russian subjects. These policies of Russification were more often than not targeted at troublesome ethnic groups, such as the Poles. The Baltic Germans, as a reward for their loyal service to the empire, were left alone for the most part. In the latter half of the 19th century, however, the rising threat of the newly formed German Empire provoked a wave of anti-German sentiment in Russia. Tsar Alexander III, who assumed the throne in 1881, was himself a Germanophobe and he sought to neutralize the perceived threat posed by the German minority population in the Baltic. And now they too were made subject to Russification. In practical terms, Russification policies involved establishing Russian as the official language and replacing long-standing German-dominated institutions with new Russian ones. This included schools, such as the one that Ungern attended, the Nicholas I Gymnasium in Reval. These new Russian language schools were tasked with creating a generation of patriotic Russian citizens from the ethnically diverse pupils of the empire. Daily routines were laden with patriotic rituals, classrooms were filled with Russian patriotic iconography, and daily lessons were of course done primarily in the Russian language. The curriculum itself was also created to prepare children for careers in the Russian officer corps or civil bureaucracy. I explain all this to you just to give you an idea as to why Roman von Ungern Sternberg, an ethnic German born in Austria and raised in Estonia, 
ultimately became the fanatic Russian nationalist that history knows him to be. Whether his nationalist sentiments were a natural result of his early education, or if they were something that he felt he needed to adapt to fit into the military, is a matter of debate. Whatever the case, Ungern emerged from his adolescence with a, quote, over-intense admiration of the dominant Russian majority, bordering on worship, end quote. This is an example of the so-called borderland syndrome, as described by Isaiah Berlin. This theory explains why not only Ungern Sternberg, but such figures as Napoleon Bonaparte and Adolf Hitler, who were born on the borderlands of the nations they are so famous for leading, to develop such ardent sympathies for their nations. But I digress. To phrase things lightly, Ungern was a less-than-ideal student. His behavior in and out of class was consistently disobedient and occasionally violent, bordering on psychopathic. Of particular concern was his inclination towards animal cruelty, a common precursor to homicidal tendencies later in life, such as the incident when he, completely unprompted, strangled an acquaintance's pet owl to death. He was a bully of whom even the other bullies were afraid. He quickly gained a dark reputation, and the parents of other pupils forbade their children to associate with him. He balked against authority and rebelled for rebellion's sake. This is all not to mention his poor academic performance. He was consistently ranked among the bottom five in his class of 50. Eventually, the school superintendent wrote a letter to Ungern's mother and stepfather, requesting that he be withdrawn from the school lest he be expelled. Tired of his misbehavior, Ungern's stepfather made arrangements for him to attend the Naval Academy in St. Petersburg. Located within the heart of the imperial capital, the school was a popular destination for the troubled sons of Russia's noble families. In fact, only members of the nobility, or sons of naval officers, were allowed admittance. Unlike the gymnasium in Raval, the Naval Academy was a military institution, and as such was administered with military discipline. This seems to have only enticed Ungern to rebel more. His disciplinary record includes citations for offenses such as failing to comply with dress code, talking back to teachers, disrupting mass, smoking on duty, fighting with classmates, and skipping classes. His grades also failed to improve, and he once again found himself at the very bottom of his class. As he entered his second year at the academy, the faculty decided that they had had enough of Ungern so they wrote to his parents requesting that he be withdrawn from the academy, lest he be expelled. Things were not looking up for Ungern. He was a 19-year-old dropout with very few prospects. Luckily for him, however, events transpiring halfway across the world would offer him a way out. For some time now, the Russian and Japanese empires had, for their own reasons, sought to expand their influence in East Asia. This led to the two empires coming into conflict over Manchuria, a vast region in northeastern China. They had attempted to negotiate a solution to the Manchurian problem, but, in February of 1904, talks broke down, and Japan declared war on Russia. Most everyone in Europe assumed a swift Russian victory would be a foregone conclusion. They had a larger army, a larger navy, and most importantly, their opponents were of a so-called inferior race. Russia would soon regret underestimating the Japanese, however. Before the official declaration of war had even reached the Russian capital, the Japanese Navy launched a devastating surprise attack against the Russian Pacific Fleet anchored at Port Arthur. The Russian Admiralty decided to dispatch the Baltic Fleet to reinforce what was left of the Pacific Fleet. 
Not wishing to risk a diplomatic incident with the Japanese, the British denied the Russian Navy access to the Suez Canal. Thus, the Baltic fleet was forced to take a much longer route, sailing around the southern tip of Africa and across the Indian Ocean to reach the Yellow Sea. This journey, which is honestly deserving of an episode in and of itself, took over half a year to complete. In the meantime, the Japanese won a string of victories on land at Yalu, Mukden, Port Arthur, and Liaoyang. The distance between the Russian metropole and the actual combat was immense, and, given the unadvanced state of communication technology, reports from the front still took quite a long time to reach the capital. Therefore, spirits were still pretty high when Ungern made the decision to join the army. He would be a private, just a regular enlisted man, rather than an officer, as would be befitting of his noble status, but he didn't really care about that. He was just eager to fight. It took quite some time for his regiment, the 91st Divinsk Infantry, to make its way to the front lines. It was 6,000 plus miles away. Not helping matters was the fact that the Trans-Siberian Railway, which made up the bulk of the journey, only had one track, which meant that trains were frequently forced to stop and make way for traffic heading in the opposite direction. By the time Ungern finally arrived in Manchuria in June of 1905, the war was practically over. Russia's defeat had been sealed a month prior, when the Baltic fleet, having just completed its whirlwind adventure halfway across the globe, was anticlimactically destroyed at the Battle of Tsushima. The Japanese army, despite all of its successes thus far, had overextended its supply lines and could no longer press forward on land. And thus the conflict ground to a halt, as representatives of both nations met to negotiate a treaty that would formally end the conflict. Ungern had been so anxious to see action, but there was nothing for him to do besides repair fortifications, stand guard, and wait around to be sent home. His regiment was stranded in Manchuria for the better part of eight months, as the Russian army slowly trickled back across the Trans-Siberian Railway. Despite never actually having seen combat, though, Ungern was awarded a medal seven years later for his distinguished service during the war. Meanwhile, back in Western Russia, Outrage at the nation's defeat exacerbated pre-existing social tensions, which resulted in widespread civil disturbances. In January of 1905, a crowd of demonstrators marched to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to present Tsar Nicholas II with a petition. Their chief demands were improved working conditions, an end to the Russo-Japanese War, and some democratic representation. Furthermore, the demonstration, which could hardly be called a protest, was not only peaceful, but reverent. Many in the crowd carried religious icons and sang God save the Tsar as they marched. Nevertheless, the guards outside the palace were ordered to open fire on the crowd. Over 100 demonstrators were killed, and close to a thousand were injured. The reaction to the Bloody Sunday Massacre was widespread outrage. Order broke down throughout the empire. In the urban centers, industrial workers went on strike until their grievances were addressed. In the countryside, the peasantry rose up against their semi-feudal masters, seizing, looting, and burning over 3,000 noble estates. Among these was Ungern's childhood home at Yerwakant. The manor was razed to the ground only two months before Ungern returned home from the front. Ungern looked on at these developments with righteous indignation. He had an inborn sense of class chauvinism by virtue of being born into a noble family, but now it was personal. To him, it was not the place of the workers and peasants to dictate how society should be run. To him, those of the lower classes were, quote, little more than feral animals, 
fit only to be tamed and corralled. They are rough, untutored, wild, and constantly angry, hating everybody and everything and not even understanding why. End quote. He had become an arch-conservative, an ardent believer in the old order. The monarchical system had to be defended against all threats. When Nicholas II issued the October Manifesto, which acceded to some of the revolutionaries' demands for representative government, Ungern saw it as an infringement of the absolute authority of the monarch. But Ungern's personal loyalty to the Tsar came first, and he recognized that what he had done was necessary to prevent the complete collapse of the imperial system. At least, that's what he told himself. With order restored, Ungern returned to St. Petersburg in 1906, and soon after enrolled at the Pavlovskaya Military Academy. Like the Naval Academy, from which Ungern had essentially been expelled a year prior, the Pavlovskaya Academy was an elite disciplinarian institution for young noblemen. The primary difference, however, is that it was intended to train these young noblemen to be cavalry officers, rather than naval officers. It seems that Ungern's brief stint in the army really changed something in him. His grades, while still not great, improved markedly, and he did not receive a single citation for poor behavior throughout his four-year term at the academy. He even pursued extracurricular interests, namely philosophy. He was fairly well-versed in the more conventional Western philosophers, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche were two of his favorites, but his greater interest was in Eastern esotericism. Casual interest in such forbidden knowledge was rather common among upper-class Europeans at the time. In the 1870s, a Russian immigrant to the United States named Helena Blavatsky founded what has become known as the Theosophy Movement. Blavatsky's actual beliefs were a bit too esoteric for a succinct explanation, but broadly speaking, Theosophy, whether defined more accurately as a religion or a philosophy, was an unwieldy amalgamation of elements from Buddhism and Hinduism, with some Western mysticism and pseudoscience thrown in for good measure. The problem is that Blavatsky's understanding of all of these things was fundamentally flawed. For somebody who claimed to speak so authoritatively in such matters, nearly all of Blavatsky's statements on Eastern religions were provably false. Even though some had stepped forward to accuse her of fraud, Theosophy nevertheless gained a sizable following among upper-class people in Europe and North America. It is quite likely that Ungern discovered Blavatsky's writings during his time in St. Petersburg. Theosophical writers often branded theosophy as esoteric Buddhism. As it just so happens, this was a term that Ungern would later use to describe his own beliefs. Ungern's cousin, Hermann von Keislering, wrote that Ungern was, quote, very interested in Tibetan and Hindu philosophy, and that he was one of the most metaphysically gifted men that he had ever met, unquote. He also claimed that Ungern possessed the ability to read people's minds and levitate objects, so read into that what you will. As was standard procedure, graduates of Russia's officer academies were allowed to choose where they wished to be posted once they began active service. Most of Ungern's classmates chose prestigious postings in the European half of the empire. Ungern, on the other hand, chose to take a position with the 1st Argoon Regiment, a Cossack cavalry unit based in the Siberian region of the Transbaikal. Outside of Russia, and even inside Russia to some extent, the name Siberia conjures images of a frozen, empty hellscape. This reputation is not entirely undeserved. For one, Siberia was indeed vast. At 13 million square kilometers, or 5 million square miles, 
It is larger than the entire European continent in terms of land area. In terms of population, however, now that was a different story. Most of the land was tundra or taiga, not suitable for extensive human settlement. The settled population lived in the southernmost reaches of the region, which were mostly steppe, flat, dry grasslands. Here, limited agriculture was possible, and larger settlements could be sustained. Still, such things were rather uncommon. The only proper city in the region was Novosibirsk, boasting a population of around 60,000 as of 1913. For reference, the capital city of St. Petersburg at the same time had a population of 2.6 million. Historically, Siberia had been host to an indigenous population. These were nomadic tribespeople, ethnically related to the Turks and Mongols. The demographics of Siberia started to change drastically in the 16th century, with the arrival of the Cossacks. Now, the Cossacks are rather difficult to define as a group. Strictly speaking, they were not an ethnicity, as many assume, although many did share a common Slavic ancestry. The first Cossacks had been lower-class Russians, Poles, and some Turks who found themselves living on the margins of acceptable society. Over time, these outcasts formed their own societies, culture, and governments. They prided themselves on their libertarian lifestyle and political independence. They also earned a powerful reputation as skilled cavalrymen. In the 15th century, the Cossacks allied themselves with the emerging Tsardom of Russia, offering their military service in exchange for retaining their political independence and personal freedoms. The Cossacks acted as a vanguard for Russian imperial expansion, and were instrumental in claiming Siberia for the empire. Cossacks made up the majority of the permanent population in Siberia until about 1906, when the government, in an effort to alleviate issues of overcrowding, began encouraging inhabitants of central Russia to move to Siberia. Thanks to pervasive government propaganda and generous financial incentives, nearly three million ethnic Russians, mainly peasants and merchants, immigrated to the region between 1906 and 1914. Native Siberians still made up a decent portion of the population, at around 12 to 20%. But the question remains. Why would an up-and-coming young cavalry officer willingly choose a position that most of his peers would have viewed as a punishment? What drew Ungern to the east? Well, the same propaganda efforts that had enticed three million lower-class Russians to immigrate to Siberia seem to have had some effect on the upper class as well. The perception of Siberia and Russian society at the time can be compared to the American Wild West. The climate was less than ideal for settlement, but it was thought that the hardships faced out there built one's character. Amongst the Russian officer corps, to go east, i.e. to Siberia, became a sort of rite of passage. Several notable military figures of the era began their careers in the borderlands, such as General Paul von Rennenkampf, one of the few competent Russian generals of the Russo-Japanese War. He also happened to be Ungern's great-uncle, and Ungern might have expected to benefit from his patronage when he went out east. The official duty of the first Argun Cossacks was the defense of Russia's border with the Qing Empire. Russia was forced to abandon most of its Far Eastern ambitions after being defeated by Japan, so militarily the region was fairly quiet. Most of their time was spent performing tedious duties combat drills, patrolling the countryside, escorting merchants, and so on. The most action the men of the Argun Cossacks ever saw was the occasional bandit raid. The army often made camp hundreds of miles from the nearest settlement, so options for recreational activities were rather limited. A lot of the men took to heavy drinking to pass the time, Ungern included. 
Given Ungern's volatile temperament, it should come as no surprise to learn that the influence of strong drink only brought out his worst tendencies. This would eventually lead to his expulsion from the unit, due to a drunken altercation with a fellow officer. Details on the nature of this incident are rather scarce. Some sources report that it was a duel, others state that it was just a shouting match. Regardless, the fact that Ungern was expelled from his regiment as a result of the confrontation gives some ideas to the seriousness of the incident as well as to who exactly was at fault. Because he was a nobleman with friends in high places, Ungern escaped any further legal repercussions for his actions, and he was soon able to find a new position with a new regiment, the 1st Amur Cossacks. Before he set off to his new regiment's headquarters in the town of Blagoveschensk, Ungern, instead of availing himself of the railway, opted to make the entire 600-mile journey on horseback, apparently doing this for no other reason than to demonstrate his survival skills to his comrades. Ungern found his new post on the Amur River to be no less dull than the last one. He continued to drink heavily, and, in 1913, he once again got into a drunken altercation with a fellow officer. Details about this incident are more clear. This time, it was a saber duel, which left him with a prominent scar on the side of his forehead. Many have speculated that this wound might somehow be the cause of the fits of rage that he became prone to later in life. Whether it be that the wound would occasionally flare up, or that it might have even caused some brain damage. Recent scholarship, however, suggests that the cause of Ungern's mental illness was entirely genetic. So once again, Ungern was forced to leave the regiment. This time, however, he didn't request to be transferred somewhere else. He simply resigned. In his letter back to the High Command in St. Petersburg, he simply cited family issues as the reason for his resignation. But the truth of the matter was simply that he was bored out of his mind. He said that he found life out there to be suffocating. As was standard procedure, Ungern sent along the necessary paperwork to St. Petersburg, but he was already on the road before his resignation was formally approved. His destination was Mongolia. Formerly a province of China, Mongolia declared independence in 1911, when the Xinhai Revolution put an end to hundreds of years of imperial rule and threw the country into disarray. The new Republican government of China did not recognize Mongolian independence. They still considered the nation to be a province of China. In the ensuing decade, a three-way power struggle unfolded. As the Chinese sought to bring the region back into the fold, the Russians sought to expand their influence at the expense of the Chinese, and the Mongols fought for independence, having to contend with both sides. Ungern was not aware of all these diplomatic complexities, however. He had only heard reports about the ongoing conflict in the western portion of the country, and of the man leading the Mongol forces there, a warlord named Ja Lama. The Ja Lama was of mysterious origin. He was ethnically Kalmyk, a Central Asian ethnic group related to the Mongols. His real name was Dambi Janstan. Ja Lama was only a title, stemming from his claim that he was a Buddhist clergyman. That a brigand such as this could be a Buddhist monk may sound ridiculous on his face, but this was only the half of it. The Ja Lama also claimed to be the descendant of, as well as a reincarnation of, the legendary 18th century Mongol prince Amursana, and that, like his past ancestor, or reincarnation, he had been given a divine mission to drive the Chinese from the country. Whether the people bought into this or not was irrelevant. The Ja Lama was able to amass a sizable number of warriors for his mission. The Ja Lama also claimed that he could directly channel the spirit of Mahakala, the Hindu-slash-Buddhist god of destruction. 
After battles, it was said that the Jalama would perform elaborate Tantra rituals, wherein he drank the blood of his enemies from their own skulls. Whether such stories are true or not, the Jalama became infamous throughout the region. It was a cause for concern for the Bogd Khan, the ostensible ruler of all Mongolia, that the Jalama would continue to build up his own power base and effectively rule the western half of Mongolia as his own personal domain. But again, Ungern would not have known or cared very much about any of this, nor were the tales of the Jalama's rituals enough to scare him away. He was determined to get the Far Eastern adventure he had been promised one way or another. While stopping briefly to rest in the town of Uliatsai, Ungern met Alexei Berdukov, a Russian merchant who conducted business in the region. In his memoirs, Berdukov provides quite the lucid portrait of Ungern. Quote, He was sunburned and scruffy, with the dark, blank eyes of a madman. The blondish beard he had grown made him look ten years older than he was in reality. His uniform was unbelievably filthy, with worn trousers and holes in his boots. The pack on his horse was empty. All he seemed to have with him was a small canvas bag, a sword, and a pistol." End quote. The disheveled Ungern made quite an impression on Burdukov. The two agreed to travel together to Kovd, the largest city in the western portion of the country. The journey took about three days, during which time Burdukov filled Ungern in on the latest situation. Back when Mongolia declared independence in 1911, most of the old Qing authorities voluntarily ceded their power and peacefully left the country, save for the governor of Kov. In August of 1912, Mongolian forces led by Jia Lama stormed the city and seized it after a bloody struggle. By the time Ungern arrived there, he would have found it mostly abandoned, its buildings reduced to burnt-out husks. With the Jia Lama and his men off gallivanting somewhere in the countryside, and the Chinese garrison dead in piles outside the town, effective control of the city fell to the Russian consul, Victor Liuba, and the fifty or so Cossacks who served as his bodyguard. Upon arriving in Kovd, Ungern met with Consul Liuba, and apparently made a favorable impression on him, but his request to join up with the Mongol revolutionaries was denied. Officially, the only business Russia had in the region was the protection of its citizens. If the Russian government appeared to aid the Mongols in any way, they risked a diplomatic incident with China. Yuba instead offered Ungern a position with the Consular Guard. What exactly happened during Ungern's time serving in the Consular Guard is uncertain. Historians aren't even sure that he accepted the position in the first place. All we know is that Ungern departed Mongolia for Estonia sometime between August 1913 and July 1914. There is a marked lull in the action in Mongolia from this time until about 1917 or so, so Ungern would not have had many opportunities to embark on the grand adventure he dreamed of regardless. Burdukov reports that he spent most of his time among the locals, learning their language, visiting their places of worship, and occasionally going on hunting trips with them, and things of this nature. However, if you asked Baron Pyotr Wrangel, under whom Ungern would later serve during the Great War, he would tell you that Ungern spent his brief stint in Mongolia leading the Mongolian cavalry and leading the Mongol rebels to victory almost single-handedly. This, of course, was pure hearsay. Rumors, perhaps incited by Ungern himself. Not that he would need to do such a thing, however. His real actions would be the stuff of legends soon enough. And that seems as good a place as any to end things for today. I encourage you to tune in next time as we talk about Ungern's actions in the Great War, and during the Russian Revolution and subsequent Civil War, as we will witness the legend of the Black Baron be born in real time. 
If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or even corrections for me, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com, or address them to me on Twitter at KaiserWillemII. Again, I'm your host, Willem Connor, and I'd like to personally thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you all again in two weeks' time.